We're privileged to have with us Rabbi Sharon Browse, and it's so gratifying to see a full room. And uh, there's good reason to have a full room, because it's a privilege to have an evening with Rabbi Browse, who, as the rabbi of Icar in Los Angeles, and as we were just talking before, now the rabbi for Mayor Eric Garcetti, among others in the LA community, is a shaper of possibility and engagement. So as has been the case for others, it's my privilege to be able to interview Rabbi Browse in the moment and to do so with one eye on the clock till about uh, 8 o'clock, a few minutes after maybe, if I'm having too much fun. And then to turn it over to you to engage in a conversation, to continue the conversation with your own questions. I have a cold, as you can hear in my voice. I don't feel as bad as I sound. <laughs> and hopefully I'm thinking more clearly than I sound. And so we begin with a nikun, because so important to Ikar and to the spirituality that Rabbi Browse is engaging Jews with is music. And so I turn it over to you to choose to do your nigun how you would feel comfortable, either teaching or beginning. Okay. Um, so I'll sh I, I, I love to start this way. Um, I'll share with you a, a version of Hine Matov that Hillel Tige, who's our musical director, um, wrote, which some of you will be familiar with because I see some familiar faces here. Um, so it goes like this. And I don't have a great voice. That's on purpose so that you'll have to sing <laughs> with me. Otherwise, you're just listening. Nobody wants to just listen to this. So <laughs> here's how it goes. <laughs> the whole thing. So let's do it again. He Maybe we'll close with it as well. So now that you all know it, um, after the flow of ideas uh, is in this space for some time, maybe we can close the same way we open. So those words mean, behold how good it is that the tribes are gathered together. That 
dwelling together as an extended family, also one. Teach us that verse. <laughs> and what it means to you. So, it, you know, it's interesting. Psalm 133. <laughs> Let me start by thanking you, <laughs> Rabbi Spitz, for inviting me here. It's, um, it's an honor and it's a pleasure for me to be here with all of you tonight. Um, and I really, there are many people here who I've seen who've made, who've made the trip down to Icar, and it's so nice to, to be able to be with all of you, um, including, I think I saw Rabbi Adam Greenwald somewhere in this room and his folks. So, um, so hello. And, and Rabbi Kavod Oh, hi. hi. Um, and, uh, and I'm especially happy to be here because my brother-in-law, Rabbi Stuart Light, and my sister-in-law, uh, Vibka Light, uh, and their family just moved to town. So hopefully we'll be doing a lot more driving uh, on this part of, down to this part of town. Okay, so, um, so what does this mean? You know, it strikes me that we are, so, we are so deeply aware as Jews of what separates us, in what ways we are different from one another. And we don't focus often enough in, um, in what ways we are all connected so deeply and intimately connected to one another. And if that's true for the Jews, how much the more so for humanity? Um, it, it, we, I, I believe part of this is because we have, um, in this generation, in this particular moment, access to more information about people alive on this planet than we have ever had before. And I think that as a result, we tend to um, turn more inward rather than outward. It's, it's sort of an ironic, um, it, it's an ironic outcome of this incredible and extraordinary access. So for example, um, this typhoon that hit the Philippines, um, not only do we know it happened, but we know the miles per hour that the wind was blowing. We, uh, we have a, a fairly decent sense, uh, at, least, at least as much as possible now, of how many people already um, have, have been killed and probably, uh, and probably how many more they're estimating as well. Um, we know individual stories of people who, um, who fall to tragedy, who die um, under really tragic circumstances on a daily basis. And because we have so much access to so much information and because so much of it is so tragic, um, and overwhelming, I think we tend to close the circle um, around our lives so that we're really, life becomes more manageable. And as a result, we end up closing ourselves off from other people in, in very profound ways. And so part of, what, um, part of what we're trying to do and part of what I think Judaism as a spiritual practice really calls us to do is to recognize the ways that we are all really deeply and intimately connected to one another. Um, those kind of, I think of them as the sort of hidden um, and invi or invisible roots of connection that are established between human beings across time and across space um, that, that we understand when we, when we recognize as empathic beings that we, um, that we share this earth, that we, that we share the air um, that we breathe together and that, that help us understand that, that being part of humanity and being part of Ju the Jewish people, um, that we hold a certain amount of responsibility for one another. So. Um, Hine Matov, I don't think, was penned in order to bring that message to the world necessarily. Um, but maybe if we start by recognizing the ways that we're connected to the people in our families, um, despite the fact that we sometimes feel incredibly distant from them, um, it might help us realize how really connected we are to those in our community. And then it might help us redefine what community is. And those circles end up becoming bigger and bigger until we realize um, how deeply and powerfully connected we all are to one another. 
So Shabbat Achim, how good it is for extended family to dwell together. With the uh, Philippines in mind, it's a very big family. It's the family of humanity. As a rabbi, what do you say to the young person who says, I'm concerned about humanity. I don't feel a need to be limited by belonging to the Jewish people. What's the value of that particularity in extending one's heart beyond? So I believe that the best way to be a universalist in the world is to be a particularist. And so um, this is something that, that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes uh, extensively and, and rather beautifully about. Um, if you really love humanity, then you need to start by loving someone, right? Um, so it's, it's actually very, it's very easy to say I love everyone, but it means nothing. Um, what we have to do is we have to start by loving someone and, and understand how the human heart works um, and, and start to extend ourselves and share responsibility for one another. So I don't, I don't require as the starting point for this conversation, um, in, is it hard to hear? I'm noticing a few people. Yes? Can you hear? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't require as a starting point for entering into this conversation either an affirmation of faith, an affirmation of connectedness to the Jewish people, a statement of commitment to the state of Israel. I just require someone to actually be present and to be willing to be in a conversation with an open heart. So, um, so if somebody comes to me saying, I love humanity and I'm a universalist and I don't feel the need to be part of the Jewish people, great, come on in and daven with us. Right? Because my sense is that if we really want to, um, if, we, if we really care deeply about human beings, that, that the Jewish path, um, which is the path that, that is ours, that the Jewish path is the best way for us to fulfill our commitments and our obligations to human beings. So with that kind of being meta, to move for a moment to the particular, I listened to I mentioned, as we were talking before, that it's worth going to the eCar website. That, again, talking to my leadership. <laughs> Holy envy for the content and quality of the eCar website, including a fantastic video. If I had a big screen, if I was more technologically sophisticated, I would have shown the minute and a half video of the eCar, the Shabbat video. It's great. So. In that regard, I listened to your Devar Torah from Parshat Bereshit of uh, just a month or so ago. And you spoke about the power of first, of beginnings, mm -hmm. of first memories. What's your first Jewish memory? Um, well, let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it by, by uh, not, not directly, but let me just say my first regret of this evening is that <laughs> I just don't want anybody to walk away thinking that I, that I believe that the best way to be, um, a, to be a human being in the world is to be a Jew. That's not what I meant. What I meant is for Jews, the best way for us to be humanist and to be universalist is the Jewish path. So I just want to be clear about that. My first regret of the evening. Um, first so, clarification. Of the first evening. Okay. Um, my first Jewish memory. That's a great question. I do remember. I do remember Seder um, at my at my uncle's house. We have a very big family. Um, my father's one of three brothers, and each of them had two girls and a boy. They planned that, um, and so we had lots of cousins, lots of uh, lots of great food, and a lot of singing um, at the table. And this was not a this was not a seder where um, the kids would sort of run off and play in the other room. But we were we were all sitting at that table 
um, for four, five, six hours every every year, and just um, singing and eating and being together. So I do, I do. That probably is among the earliest um, of memories. I can tell you the first time I felt truly alienated from the Jewish community. Maybe that would be more interesting. <laughs> or my first truly humiliating experience as a Jew. Um, so I went to I went to college in New York City. Um, a school that I chose in part because it had a really strong um, Jewish presence, and I was very strongly identified um, as Columbia. a Jew. Columbia. Yes. And, um, <laughs> Don't ever go to Ivy League schools and say, I went to school in Boston. In Cambridge, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they do that. They do that. The Harvard people do that. Do that. Yes. They do that in public settings, at least. Yes. <laughs> anyway, well, the important piece is that, well, it was in New York, which helps me yeah. for the late, latter part of the story, but um, I went to, um, I, I found that, that every Jewish experience that I entered as a young, very strongly Jewish identified but fairly illiterate Jew um, was incredibly humiliating and, and really difficult for me, um, in part because I started to realize that there was a Jewish language and Jewish culture and Jewish cultural expectations far beyond what I had been exposed to in my, um, in my very safe, very closed Jewish environment that I grew up in in the suburbs uh, in New Jersey. And so I, I had a number of really embarrassing experiences where I was the only person in the room who didn't know the words to Kiddush, for example, at Friday night dinner, or I was the person who would strike up a conversation in between hand washing and mozi, and I wondered why everyone was just staring at me. And so, I, you know, and for those of you who aren't laughing, that's who I was. I was the one who didn't get the joke. So, um, and so, but the but the first. Which is that you're not supposed to talk between hand washing. And you're not supposed to, but nobody ever tells you that. So if you're me. You, time after time, you strike up conversation during this awkward moment, and I do re I do recall um, this one, one moment in particular when I was invited to Shabbat dinner in the dorm room um, from by an Orthodox student, and um, and she asked if I would bring salad dressing to uh, to the dinner, and so and this turns out to be a very formative moment for me. Um, I do I actually remember checking ingredients. Um, I was 17 years old, and I was very strict vegetarian, and so I checked ingredients on everything, and there was no animal anywhere near this Italian dressing. And so I brought the, the salad dressing in, and I put it down on the kitchen table when I walked into her dorm room, and, um, and she started shrieking in horror. And as I recall, in this, uh, in this profoundly humiliating moment, she actually pulled down a dish towel, wrapped it around her hands, wrapped my salad dressing, and threw it out into the hallway. Um, and she screamed, you totally trafed up my kitchen. That bottle's not even hectored. And so, and I said, I have no idea what any of those words mean. So, um, so that was my first truly, re really humiliating Jewish experience. She said, the, the salad dressing you bought wasn't supervised by a rabbi, she tried to explain. And it wasn't until many years later that I realized that that doesn't, that having an unhexured bottle of salad dressing in no way trapes up your countertop. But it was so powerful and such a formative moment that it sent me running from the Jewish community in a way that I can only be thankful for now because of how much I learned um, being on the other side of the Jewish community as one who was truly alienated and felt completely <laughs> uncomfortable in its midst. Did you have a bat mitzvah? I did, I did. Describe that and what you remember. My dress was cobalt blue. <laughs> <laughs> I had 
Shoes dyed to match, of course, because it was New Jersey in 1986. Which, which part of New Jersey? Short Hills. Oh. 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 So you know exactly what my bucket sweat was like. I don't need to say anymore. And I got a, a beautiful pearl necklace for my bat mitzvah. I remember that very well. I also remember um, that the clergy wrote uh, all or most of my um, of my speech, uh, which was not a Dvar Torah. It was a speech. And we did uh, memorize the first three lines of Parshat Noah um, for that for that. Um, beautiful day, so <laughs> I remember it well. And the theme, by the way, if it can't may I, um, the theme uh, was, was ice cream. And what, what theme? The theme, theme, theme of Bat Mitzvah, right. And in fact, years later, when I met, uh, the, when I met. Not, not the theme of your Devar Torah. No, 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 <laughs> no, the theme of the Bat Mitzvah. Yeah. And, um, and so I met, uh, my husband David and I met the first day of school. Um, at, at Columbia University, it's an Ivy League school. Some of you may have heard of it in New York City. So, um, so, so David and I met the first day of college, and um, and one night in first year of college, we stayed up late into the night talking about our childhood, our past, our families. And so I, one of the first questions I asked was one of the most important. I said, so what was the theme of your bar mitzvah? And he said, Torah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, what was the theme? He said, Torah. So, you told him yours was ice cream. I said, mine was ice cream, right. So, and then we realized that was the difference between his upbringing and mine in a, you know, in a moment. So did he grow up in a conservative synagogue He too? did. Um, David grew up in... I did not. Oh, you did not. No, mine was not a conservative synagogue. Right. Okay. Um, so it was it was a big reform synagogue, which we called the Church on the Hill. Um, if that was any, if that was indicative in any way of. Um, so no, David grew up in in uh, Addis Jeshurun in Philadelphia, which some of you might know, and uh, and that shul, which I recently was uh, able to go back and visit, um, and I brought my my middle child there so that she could find. Uh, Ava's face in the confirmation uh, pictures that are up on the wall. Um, actually, that synagogue, uh, that the, the first time that I went there, um, which was before Vipka came into the family, actually, a few years before, um, David invited me to come home as, as when his little sister became bat mitzvah. And so I, after this incident with the salad dressing happened, I had abandoned Judaism and I started to study Eastern religion and I was studying African American history and culture and I wanted to become a constitutional lawyer and a civil rights attorney. I was studying constitutional law. And I had nothing to do with the Jewish community, mostly because I was just, I was sort of crushed by the idea that someone could grow up with a very strong identity and then be completely alienated in a Jewish environment of all places. And so um, I had really kind of abandoned ship. And, um, and then I was invited to go home for David's uh, sister's bat mitzvah in Philadelphia. And so we went to this conservative synagogue. And actually, and the, the service itself was important in my, in my development also. But the real, the real epiphany came for me um, at Friday night dinner uh, the night before. David's family, uh, there were four siblings. And the rule was in their family, you stay home on Friday night no matter what, uh, all through the teenage years, and they held fast to this, but you could invite over any friends you want, and they're welcome at our Shabbos table. And so this was sort of a hub of Jewish life in Philly, and there were always tons of people, tons of books, lots of singing, 
Um, and it gave me a sense when I was there as an 18-year-old uh, who had rejected Judaism uh, a year before, it gave me a sense of what might be possible in Jewish life. And it was a profoundly moving experience for me. So we're going to come back to the turning points of you becoming Rabbi Browse. But you clearly had this passion for social justice, which is an important part of Rabbi Browse. Um, as an 18-year-old wanting to become a constitutional civil rights lawyer, where does that come from, that passion? Um, I, I don't know, but I, guess, <laughs> I, I don't know exactly where it, where it came from, but... Um, What's the I, earliest injustice you remember? So I do, <laughs> I do remember um, when, I was, when I was 12, I, um, I used to go, I had my parents drive me to a church after school once a week uh, where I would tutor a little girl who got bussed in from Newark, which was 11 miles door to door from my house to her house um, because I wanted to help her read because I had heard from someone that, it, that there are all these kids that, who, um, who can't read at level because they don't have anyone reading to them at home when they're little. And so this little girl came in, uh, her name was September she was born in September and um, and so that, that you remember that clearly was a powerful encounter it was this was actually a very formative yeah. <laughs> a formative uh, relationship for me we ended up staying in relationship for many many years and uh, and at some at a certain point she invited me to come to her home in Newark so we would only meet in the church and we'd spend a couple hours every week together it was a really important um, time for me an important relationship for me I went to her home and my parents drove me there. And you know, my mom, they, they were explaining how all the Jews used to live in Newark until the white flight happened. And they all left and moved uh, out a little bit further to the suburbs. And Newark was, at least at this time, and this was in the, in the 80s, um, was really, um, in, in, in the part of Newark where September lived was in really horrible shape. And I had never seen such poverty in my life. And how we old had, were you? I was about 12, 13 years old when this happened. Yeah. We had traveled as a family a lot, and I'd seen, I, I had seen poverty before um, in, in different parts of the world. Um, we went to Venezuela, and I remember seeing, looking out the train, you know, we didn't go through those neighborhoods, but I remember seeing things. Um, outside the neighborhood that one doesn't see in Short Hills, New Jersey. Um, but it was not somebody who I loved and cared about until it was September. And I, I saw her home. They had no electricity. She lived in a three-story brownstone. It was a walk-up. And I'm sure a lovely Jewish family had lived there 30 years earlier. Now there were, there were no windows and no electricity. So there was, there, they had wooden, uh, they had plywood on the windows. Were they squatters? I don't know. I don't know, actually. I know that they had garbage bags full of trash all over the house, inside the house. There was a terrible smell. And I just, I walked in this place and it, it absolutely shattered me. And I thought, 11 miles door to door. And I remember a few years later when uh, one of my best friends was given a Lexus on her 17th birthday, uh, as was you know, the custom uh, for many kids in that, in that community. And what she did, um, what she did to, to entertain herself one, one night was she drove into Newark to see if she could get out alive. And I think she was trying to get her parents' attention. That's my guess. Um, so thank God she got out alive. But I just, I realized, you know, it, was, it had already been several years that I had been in relationship with September and her family. 
And I thought, this isn't a game. This yeah. is not a game. Yeah. There are real people who struggle in real and profound ways here, and it's our, it's, it's our backyard, and it's our responsibility. And so I realized, you know, you're either on one side of history or the other. And that's, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Which side are you going to be on? So we're going to skip over you becoming a rabbi, because I have one eye on the clock, and we've already used up a half hour. <laughs> and that only gives us a half hour. And this is billed as how to energize synagogue life. So skipping over, you're an outsider insider in your background. What was your vision for creating your synagogue? Okay, so um, so I do actually have to backtrack a little bit in order for this to really sure. make sense. So um, shortly after I had this experience in Philadelphia on Shabbat, um, I, I decided um, that what I had to do was I had to do a little bit of learning about my Judaism, partially so I wouldn't be embarrassed anymore, and partially because I imagined that one day I might want to have a family like David's family and have a Shabbos dinner like that. And, um, and so I asked, uh, I, I asked David's mother, uh, who's a Jewish educator, if she could tell me which synagogue to go to so I could start to learn. And she actually wrote up on a legal pad because this was like 10 minutes before the internet. I'm, I'm just gonna pause again. Stuart Light, who's new the, now the educator at Tarboot, she's talking about his, his mother. mother. Right. So, <laughs> so um, who was and is a superhero. And Wendy so Light. what she did was she wrote down every single synagogue in New York City. So on a on a piece of uh, yeah on a the yellow ones legal that were pad. worth listing. Okay, you remember yellow legal pads? She yeah. and she took a pen. Remember pens? She took a pen. She wrote down a big list and then she mailed it to me. Remember the mail? So I got this list and David and I started to go to every synagogue in Manhattan every Friday night. We went to a different synagogue and this the reason this yeah. is important because. So much of building Ikar is a reflection of this journey, this part of the journey in particular. And I, I would leave crying every single week from every place we went. Like, to be totally frank, the conservative and the orthodox synagogues were incredibly alienating. I felt judged. I felt inadequate. Nobody ever welcomed us. Nobody ever told us what page we were on. There were all these rules and assumptions, and I didn't know any of them, and I felt like an eternal outsider. Then I went to the reform synagogues. And I had this sort of Woody Allen, you know, <laughs> why would I want to be a part of a club that would want me to be a member? And so I, I actually thought, this is how I grew up. And I was left feeling like I didn't know enough. And so am I going to be able to actually learn enough here? And so obviously this was, you know, a total outsider's uh, perspective. But I felt incredibly uncomfortable. We did this for many, many weeks, about 30 weeks. And New York has a lot of synagogues. A lot of synagogues. And, um, and then I landed at B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side one Friday night, by chance. I had no idea what it was. There was no internet, right? So, um, so I, we landed there. And I literally remember saying to David before we walked in, um, I said, if this doesn't work, I'm this done. Is, this is what year? This was 92. So this is post-Rabbi Marshall Meyer. Before, no, Rabbi Marshall Meyer was still, still he was there. still alive. And yeah. Marshall, it was right before he died. Yeah. It was about six months before he died. Yeah. Uh, so he, I don't think he knew he was sick yet at yeah. the point. So we walked into this place. I sat in the back row, and m these two rabbis, one with this Argentinian accent and one this big, strong 
guy, um, it, they stood at the front of the room and they were pounding, they were standing at opposite sides of the shulchan over here, you know, this table, pounding on the table, talking about, about HIV AIDS. It's 1992. I had not heard anybody talk about it out loud, honestly. And what they said was that homophobia and fear of the other was going to prevent us from, uh, from educating properly and from uh, allocating proper resources to stop this disease before it becomes a global pandemic. And Rabbi Marshall Meyer said, mark my words, if we don't intervene in some serious and dramatic and radical way, we will watch millions and millions of young people die from this disease. And he said, every one of us has an obligation as a Jew and as a human being to take to the streets on this issue. And I was crying, not for the reason I usually cried at Joel, for the good reason. And then they just started in the goon, and everybody took to their feet, and they started dancing in the aisle. And I was so, I was in, it was total love at first sight, even though it was the 30th sight, you know. <laughs> but that was the Judaism that really sort of set my heart on fire. I thought, if this is what Judaism is, I'm in. And so then I went to Israel to study, and Marshall died while I was in Israel, and I came back to learn with Roly and Marcelo there. Um, at B'nai Jeshurun. But years later, when we, when we went out to Los Angeles, um, I, and I ended up becoming a rabbinic fellow at B'nai Jeshurun after uh, rabbinical school, and learning a tremendous amount there from my teachers and my rabbis. Um, but then we moved to Los Angeles, and, and what I start, now to answer your question, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm answering every question like a rabbi. Let me tell you a story. Um, a few <laughs> words before I speak. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I, um, I realized that some of the most interesting and smartest and most creative people that I, that I was meeting in Los Angeles when we moved out there were totally disconnected from Jewish life. They were the people who, if the Pew Study researchers had called them last yeah, month and exactly. said, what is your religion, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, or, or other or none, they would have said none, right? And yet they were Jews. They had been raised as Jews, had Jewish parents, and they were totally disconnected from Jewish life. And I thought, what a shame, because I know what Jewish life can offer, and I know what it can feel like to be in a real community where where you look forward to Shabbos starting on Tuesday because you're going to be with your people and your heart is going to soar and you're finally going to be able to cry and you're finally going to be able to dance and, and you're going to be talking about the things that matter most in the world. I thought, what what a shame and what a waste that we're not, we're missing all of these people. And in LA, it's 75% of the Jewish community that's not connected in any meaningful way. Um, or was, you know, it was that about 10 years ago. Um, and it's probably not so different now. Um, and so what, what I wanted to do was I wanted to be able to create a community that would at, at once speak to the heart and to the mind, that would be both particularistic and universalistic, that would give us a strong, powerful sense of what it means to be a Jew in the world, and that that self-understanding would help us understand what it means to be a human being in the world. I noticed the two trends that were happening, this was 2004, that were, that were happening at once. One was the whole world was falling apart, frankly. Uh, do you remember 2004? So it's post 9-11, I was in New York for 9-11 um, and had moved out subsequently. Terrorism, the war in Iraq, Abu Ghraib, I mean, it, it just, it's, it seemed to me like the world was just on fire and with no end in sight, you know, violence, hatred, this growth of religious uh, fanaticism and fundamentalism on one hand, and then 
all of these smart, creative, interesting young Jews totally disconnected from Jewish life on the other. And I thought, these two trends can't have nothing to do with each other. What if we created a space that could actually, that, where we could talk about these most critical and important um, trends that we see happening in the world and do it in a way that would be profoundly challenging and inspiring and not feel good all the time and not try to feel good all the time. Um, but would but would help people feel like there's a container to hold the experience of being a human being in the world, and that's a Jewish container. Who would show up? And so uh, my my desire was to create a space for a real and powerful Jewish conversation to happen that that m was happening in different places at this point, but not touching any of those people who were outside of the conventional institutional Jewish life. What I found at this time also was that. There is in in the generation of you know, what are called you know Gen Y or millennials you know younger Jews um, people who are now sort of forty five and under um, there's a kind of institutional allergy that there's a way in which a lot of young people and maybe you recognize this yourself or in your family members um, who are in this generation who are really searching for and longing for some kind of meaningful substantive engagement in the world simply won't walk into institutional spaces because they feel that, that it's not for them. It doesn't matter how good it is, what, you know, what's happening in there. It doesn't matter how great the rabbi is or how dynamic the program is or how free the pizza is. They're just not interested in going into those environments. And so I started noticing all of these different trends and thinking, I don't need the conventional, I don't need the conventions of American Jewry, I need the substance of Judaism, and we have to figure out a delivery mechanism to bring the good stuff out to where the people are. Because that's, I mean, th that's what I have, my loyalty is not to the institution um, of American Jewry as made manifest in 1950s architecture and, you know, and spatial uh, setup. My, my loyalty is to God and to Torah and to the Jewish people and to humanity. So how do I bring that out uh, into, into the broader community? So for those who have, who here has been to ECAR by a show of hands? Wow, wow, yeah. Where is it? ECAR is, interestingly, in the West Side JCC, which is Pico and Fairfax, in a rented space. I went there this summer because I was curious to hear about the ECAR thing. And some of the things that struck me about ECAR that I'd like you to develop and explain is first, before you enter into the space, in the hallway is coffee, decaf coffee and hot water for tea. There are cups that are recyclable, but they ask that you instead bring a cup from home so that we won't even have to deal with landfills. So the first thing is that you're invited adult-like to bring a cup of coffee Saturday morning into the sanctuary. <laughs> Second thing I noticed is that there's a blackboard, a blackboard, remember papers and pen blackboard, <laughs> in which it's written out all the coming events. And I thought, that's an attention to detail that I'm impressed by. And the third thing is that there is a prayer team who helps create the flow of singing in the room. 
So comment on those three innovations. Okay. Um, so first of all, uh, some of you might know Michael Brooks, who ran the Hillel at University of Michigan for many years. Do you, you're probably I have a daughter like, there. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I was uh, I was working in a day school in a community day school right before we started Icar. And Michael Brooks was brought in as a consultant, and uh, the the, top, the administrators from the school gave him this beautiful tour around the day school and showed him um, all of the really incredible elements of the facility. And he didn't say a word for about two hours through this very extensive tour of the premises. And then uh, we sat down together, and he said, "Okay, here's my assessment." He said, "You all think that this place is about Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut Chasadim, right?" He said, you think this place is about teaching Torah, about serving God, um, and about doing, being kind to others, that those are the three pillars of this place. He said, I'll tell you what this place screams to the world that it's about. The whole world hates us, and they all want to kill us, and we need your money. And he said, I'll tell you why, uh, how I know this, because when you, when you approach your property, there's a, huge, there's a security guard at the front. And, and nobody's allowed in until they go through security. And then there's a big banner that says, annual campaign, 100% participation. So he said, this is what you're messaging to the world. You think that you're messaging love and inclusivity and welcome is, you're not. <laughs> they hate us and we want your money. Okay, so we, that was an important uh, moment for me, pre-ICAR. So when we built ICAR, we had to really think, what do we want to message to people when they walk into this space? Um, and so the first thing is, I remembered from uh, years ago, I went to, I, I spent Shabbat in, in Philadelphia. And so I went to a conservative synagogue, a different, different shul in Philadelphia. Um, I walked in on Shabbos morning and there was a giant sign that said, no cell phones, no pagers. And I thought, wow, Shabbat Shalom, you know? <laughs> like, you're already, welcome, you're already screwing up in at least two ways, you know? So, I, so the, what we decided was that we have to be really thoughtful about what messages we're communicating to people. So the first thing we did was we made a big sign that says, Shabbat Shalom, welcome to Ikar. Our custom is to power down on Shabbat to see if we might be able to experience something holy if we put our phones and devices away for a few hours. You know, we invite you to join us. And all of a sudden, people feel like, oh, I'm not in trouble. I'm being, I'm, something's being asked of me, and I'm being challenged in some way. Okay, so we have, we, and all of our signs are sort of in that tone. The coffee is from a, it's not local, but it's really good coffee. It's, it's from a Ugandan Muslim Jewish co-op. Um, and, it's, and, it, and it's excellent coffee. And I think this is really important it's because- Gershom's brother. Yeah, I think it is. I think so. Um, I think that uh, look, Jews are nicer when we've had coffee on Shabbos morning. <laughs> so um, I'm not saying we're different from people who aren't Jewish in this way, but just the reality is that our people do better with a cup of a good cup of coffee in the morning. So I'm not going to begrudge us that. So we have coffee. Um, we have all. Com we use all compostables. It's much more expensive to use compostables, but it's important, and we're trying to. We're trying to teach people about what it means that we produce so much waste. I think all the time about um, a friend of mine who in college had to carry around all of his trash um, in a bag. Whatever he accumulated during the week, he had to actually carry with him everywhere he went. Try, think about that. Any piece, any tissue, any cup, any, and he just... You did uh, that as a lifestyle or as an experience? No, it was an experience. It was actually at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and they, the teacher challenged them to do this, and it changed his life forever. And so this is about <coughs> mindfulness, just about creating a little bit of, of mindfulness in the, way that we, uh, in the way that we do the most mundane of things, like drink a cup of coffee in the morning. 
Okay. Um, and then the, um, the davening team, um, so the davening team is, we, we, we daven, what, so this will take more than a minute to get to, okay. <laughs> so my understanding of, of prayer for Jews is that prayer is truly dialogical. I think life is dialogical. I think especially prayer is dialogical, meaning that it's not about one person and one person's experience, and maybe you maybe you break through and you know shatter the gates of heaven and maybe you don't but it's about me and how deep i can i can go into my own experience i think that prayer is about human beings connecting with other human beings and being able to ultimately hopefully connect with god something greater than both of us but prayer happens best when it's in dialogue and so so what we do is we structure the seats in different ways uh each each week, in theory, sometimes we get a little lazy on that, and we got to jumpstart that. Um, but we we believe that you have to be surprised in some way when you walk in, so that you're awake. But wh- however we structure the seats, wherever you're sitting, so, wait, it's different arrangement every week. Yeah, yes. So because because and this is how many years? It's ten years. Now again, we don't do it exactly every week, and sometimes we get a little comfortable, and that's when I get nervous. So. Um, so then we start to shake things up uh, again. But one of the requirements we set when we started ECAR was we couldn't be in a place where the chairs were rooted to the ground. Because if you can't be physically fluid as a community, so how can you be spiritually fluid? That we need to be able to move around. And sometimes you, have, you need to have a different kind of experience. And what if you feel moved to dance? Yeah. And you have to say, excuse me, I'm so sorry, pardon me, excuse me, to 16 people before you can get out to the aisle, that nothing kills the spirit like 16 excuse me's. And, uh, and you know, 14 of, who, 14 of those people are saying, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so what we do is we try to create the space with, with an attention to, um, to, to m- mobility, to just the idea that you never know what might happen to somebody in a service. Someone might want to stand up while everyone else is seated. I want those people to stand. Someone else might feel like dancing. I want for you to have easy access to get around as best you can. Um, so, so, and also to, so, so Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote in, in a very powerful essay, which later became uh, Man's Quest for God. He wrote, um, which is a really extraordinary and gorgeous little book on prayer. If you if you want to read and, and learn, it's great. It's a great book to, to um dive into and and one of his most accessible I think um, so this is man's quest for God so he writes in this about how there's no there's no surprise in the synagogue anymore he says synagogue is the graveyard where prayer is buried right he said there's no adventure of the soul there's no surprise nothing ever happens that we didn't expect to happen and yet prayer is supposed to be about us communicating from the depths of our hearts, our love and our loss and our grief and our gratitude and our sacred hungers, right? And and how can you do that if you're just if you're just sitting in exactly the same place, hearing exactly the same things that you have, you know, week after week for the past 30 years? So you have to be surprised. And I I think that's that discomfort is the birth of spiritual wakefulness. I will work to great lengths in services to make people uncomfortable because when they're a little angry, I, we make Practice. really cold and then really hot. No. No. Um, <laughs> we do that, but not on purpose. That's it. Uh, <laughs> so what's an example? Make, us, give you an example. make us uncomfortable. Well, I'll tell you. The first, uh, I mean, one, one Shabbos, last December, 
Last December, I realized like two hours before Friday night services that I was bored with our Kabbalah Shabbat. I love our Kabbalah Shabbat. The music's insanely beautiful. I sit with our davening team, which I'll get back to. Yeah. I sit with our davening team regularly and I say, I want to know what the music is that's breaking your heart open right now. What is it that you hear when you're in the car driving home from work that you actually have to pull over because it just you're choking up just from hearing it. It's that beautiful. Let's bring that sound into our davening. So it's this really sacred, powerful mix of ancient Sephardi melodies and uh, and some old Ashkenazi, you know, melodies and rusted rude and some you know in some u2 and you know bono and so all different kinds of sounds sort of flowing together because it's about it's about moving the heart and waking us up and taking us by surprise some old you know civil rights songs etc i love our services but i was bored <laughs> so i realized even with all of that it was becoming a little bit rote for me so a couple hours before services, I did a quick gut check with the rest of my team, and I said, and, and is it just me? Because I'm just not feeling it. I'm not excited to go to services. So what we did instead was we went into a room about this size instead of the main room, which is like 5,000 square feet, and a, a proper room if you're going to have a few hundred people davening. So instead, we went into a room like this, where if everybody was seated, there wouldn't be enough room. We took all the chairs out. Of, have any of you been there first Friday night of the month? A couple of you? So, um, so we took all the chairs out, I put about 20 chairs on the side for people who need to sit down for health reasons or other reasons. But everybody else, we put in the room, and I put up a sign that says, discomfort is better than boredom. And, you know, and, and we just dove in, in this big open space that became like a Jewish sweat lodge because there, <laughs> there's no AC in that room. And, um, and because we had lots and lots of people packed in. So here's what happened. The first time, this is the first Friday night that we did this last December, almost a year ago. So there are these big glass doors along the back wall. And I'm not kidding that n literally nobody came into the room. They stood outside the glass walls on the breezeway outside and looked in at the eight or nine of us who were sort of leading services in that room, but they did not walk into the room. And I had to pull people in. I had to go outside and say, come on, come into this space, just try it. People were so uncomfortable. They were so mad at me. I'm sure we lost people. I'm sure there are people who never came back. So you succeeded at this conference. Yes, yes I did. <laughs> so, because I feel like if they're angry at me, at least they're awake, right? So, the second. Remember that board. Please, <laughs> <laughs> you're awake. The second, the second month. So we did it again, and several people when they came back, they said, "Oh, I was hoping we'd be back in the auditorium." I did it one exactly one month later, first Friday night. This time. A few, maybe 150 people came in the room. They literally stood in straight lines, as if there were pews, okay? <laughs> in straight lines and did not move. And I said, people, look at you. Why are you so afraid to be free and just to be moved? Some of you need to dance right now. I want you to dance. And so the third month was the best service that we've had at ICAR. Everyone came in, people moved, people danced, they were uncomfortable, they were excited, they were, they were alive, they moved. And they were sweaty. And they were sweaty, which also, by the way, having more people in a smaller space is a much, it's, it's an environment that's much more conducive to prayer, I think, than having too many people spread out in a big open space. That's my opinion. A few months later, Rabbi Adam Greenwell can attest to this. A couple got engaged in the middle of Kabbalah Shabbat services. I think it's because of the intensity. What? In the middle of 
that Friday night service. They got engaged, and I think it's because there was an in, there's an intensity and a power and a connection that's happening between people in that space. And as I said to them, as I was, I, that, I, was that Becca? No, no. no. Another no. setting. <laughs> Dan came in and Rachel. Oh, Dan. So. I, as I said to my to the community, I said, what I have learned over the years is that if you give a Jew a chair, that Jew will sit down in a chair. If you take the chair away, that Jew might daven, right? So why not try it? Let's just see what happens, right? If we stand, is it right? Am I right? Yes. Okay. So, so this is like part of the spirit of discomfort, and and I I admit that you have to have a certain level of trust, right? And, and, I, and also that you have to be willing to lose people. There's one, I'll tell you, one, one guy, and this was very painful for me, but right in the beginning of Ikar, it was our first uh, High Holy Days, and we, and during Alenu at Rosh Hashanah in Musaf, I don't know if anyone is still there at that point, <laughs> but we, there's a moment where we fully prostrate down to the ground, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what percentage of your congregation prostrates? One hundred percent. You hear that? Because I told them, I told them that they have to, they have to do it. This right? is a strong-willed rabbi. Because they That's have to be uncomfortable. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Again, I have one eye. I'm like, I'm going to come back to the prayer group. But how do you see your role as a rabbi when you tell them you have to? How do you deal with that dichotomy, that paradox? between being insisting as the director of their spiritual practice in that moment and on the other hand the sense of everyone come in and do your thing what's so, your role so i i don't believe that people will do what we rabbis want you people to do <laughs> if we tell you that you're a bad jew if you don't but I think that people want to be inspired and they want to be moved. And if somebody says, here's a little spiritual experiment that you can try right now that might change your life, right? And those of you who are most resistant to this, I want you to be the first ones to try it because something might actually happen to you. That's something that I have found that people are incredibly resonant to, right? That, that they find resonant. So not everybody again it's not for everybody some people say like i don't want to be uncomfortable i i want air conditioning and i want good seating and in fact my one of my very dear colleagues in los angeles um a very good friend we connected immediately after rosh hashanah ended a couple of years ago and he said uh, and i said how did it go <laughs> he said how did it go so i said it was amazing we did this spiritual experiment during musaf you know we have all this time it takes 45 minutes it's an hour and a half to do musaf on rosh hashanah 45 minutes of silent time nobody knows what to do with the space we did heat bodidu this you know hasidic practice of people just walking off into different corners of the room and talking to god out loud just talking and crying and you just heard all these people crying i said to him it was incredible People did it. These Jews, these cynical, skeptical, atheistic Jews with PhDs in, in physics and you know writers and producers, people who don't are not they're not from Jews and they did it. They talked to God and they cried. And I said they went down for Alenu, all of them down to the ground. I said, so how was it for you? He said, the air conditioning worked and the parking went smoothly. And so that for me that. <laughs> So I said, you just gave me my Kol Nidre appeal. Thank you so much. But in order to do that, you had to have a, a cantor and a prayer group that yes. was willing to say, okay, we're not going to be chanting and doing our thing. You, Rabbi, you guide us. We're going to let everybody do what he voted to do. 
So return now to Hillel Tegay, who's your cantor, mm -hmm. a musician, and your prayer group. What's the okay. role of the cantor and the prayer group? Okay, um, so, and these questions actually obviously connect uh, deeply. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, this is not a one-way relationship where I challenge people and they, and they do as I say. <laughs> this is, as I said before, it's dialogical, right? So I am very happy to be the first one to push, but people are pushing back on me as hard as I'm pushing on them. That's true for the community and it's true for the davening team. We have about, you know, six, seven, eight people sometimes who are all part of the davening team. We identify people not, uh, not only because they are, you know, people who are very musical and have great voices or good drummers. We don't use musical instruments in our services, we use, the voice and the drums. Um, we identify people who, because there are a lot of good musicians um, who should not be uh, leading services. We identify people who have open hearts and who can see other people aside from themselves. And so this is really important, that they, that they are present, um, really present, and that they're willing to be moved and that they understand that it's ultimately not about them being moved, but about them helping all of us uh, be moved. And so we're constantly in this beautiful dynamic tension between us. And there are moments when I'm not feeling it at all. And it's Ross on my, on my <coughs> left and Hillel on my right, and they pull me up, right? And there are moments where it happens to each one of us. And I, many times I've said to people, we are not faking it. So there are enough of us up here that if it's not real for you, take a break, go get a cup of coffee and come back because we can't, this is not a sort of performance davening where we're gonna show you what it looks like to go through the prayers, we're praying. And so, and we have, that means we have to push ourselves to a place where the prayer is real and it's not easy to do that all the time. And so, uh, so this team of people, it's a very, it's a very holy and sacred gathering that we have because I, I feel that they very often are pulling they're pulling me up and sometimes I'm pulling them up and we we end up knowing a lot about what's going on in each other's lives in each other's world so that we can do that and then the same thing starts to happen with the community so then lest we think we're moving the community the community starts to move us very often I mean it happens at least uh, at least once in every service that we start to realize that this is really a conversation how much of it is pre-planned? Take that Rosh Hashanah experience. How much is pre-planned and how much is spontaneous? It's almost all spontaneous. And how much do you control that direction? Well, I, I have to say, you know, some, we had this really beautiful group of visitors once who came um, they were from Masorti Olami. They were um, these beautiful uh, Latin American young Jews who came doing a tour of, uh, of North America, and they came to Icar, and one of them, said, and then we had this little conversation afterwards, and they were, I mean, their minds were blown by American Jewry. It's really interesting, by North American Jewry, I should say. And, um, and so one of them said, oh, I've never experienced anything like this. How did you find the courage to do this? And I said, I am not courageous. I'm spiritually selfish. So there's a big difference between those two. Spiritual selfishness, which is what I have, means I'm not gonna fake it. I'm not gonna go into a prayer environment where I'm not moved and, and pretend that I'm moved. So that means I have to actually be moved, which means I have to create an environment where I feel moved. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I actually really do trust my instincts um, a lot. If I feel uninspired, then I think we need to do something to bring inspiration into this space. 
So, uh, um, and like what happened with the Friday night service, but this, hap this is what often happens. I mean, my, I trust my own sort of spiritual gauge to say, is this working or is it not working? And even midway in the middle of a service, if it's not working, I'll say, all right, let's all get up. We're gonna, we're gonna do something different. Come to the, you know, everybody get up and moving closer right now. Let's all stand up instead of sitting down. Let's, you know, let's do something and we'll come up with some idea. It doesn't always work. I mean, maybe it doesn't even usually work, but when it works, it really works. And we're all, we're all in, invested in the same thing, which is having an experience that's real and that's meaningful. And if we trust each other enough, that's where we're gonna end up. So again, with one eye on the clock, See, we're past 8 o'clock because we're having fun and I'm enjoying the thing. <laughs> but I am aware of wanting to open it up to other questions. So I have just this last piece and then I'll reserve at the end. And the last piece is a little edgy. Now, to be a member, another thing that's distinctive about ICAR, you have to correct me, have not only a paying dues to the community, but also take on a social action project, some kind of commitment of chesed. Is that right? We, we have four areas of commitment. Yeah. So one is that everybody agrees to be part of our social justice work, and we have a lot of different ways for people to be involved, but we say we want to build a community of activists, and we really mean it, right? Um, and so that's, that's one piece that we ask for a commitment, and we have spiritual pledge cards on Rosh Hashanah, and people have to say, this is how I'm going to be involved in moving the world this year. Um, they have to make a commitment to increase uh, their Jewish learning. So whatever whatever level they come in at, and we have rabbis and deans of rabbinical schools and heads of intro to Judaism programs, and we also have a lot of people, the overwhelming majority of our people, who are really marginalized Jews who come in sort of more from like like what I was when I was in New York. So they have to, every one of us is engaged in a learning journey. They have to be part of helping to build the community because we're still really a, we're a startup still, and we need help uh, in in many even moving chairs around and hosting things in, in people's homes and they have to make some kind of financial contribution so that kind of commitment is self-selected and the, the focus will be on an urban synagogue versus suburban which is more what this is although we don't think of ourselves as a suburb we are <clears throat> diverse in who our constituency is do you have any Republicans in your congregation? <laughs> Two. <laughs> and can you preach? Can you preach to Republicans? I mean, you know, yeah. I need to divide things. So it, it, to, after uh, having talked about Shabbatachim Gam Yachad, how do we divide All the Democrats can sit together terms, as well. No. I say just in terms of an um, orientation, no, okay. which is kind of a social action, left-leaning and sounding. Right. And Rabbi Spitz asked me beforehand, is there anything I shouldn't ask you here? And I thought, well, we're in Orange County, right? So, I, no, but it's okay. I, you know, there, I, I say too because because there are two Republicans. There, there, I'm sure there are more than two Republicans, but there are two who, after every sermon, come over to me and say, as a Republican, I want to tell you how I thought what I thought about your sermon. Okay, so uh, I'm sure that there are others, but they don't necessarily introduce themselves that, that way. Um, so look, I mean, my, my... So could it work? Uh, that was just an edgy way of saying. <laughs> could, could the e-car model work in a more diverse suburban community? Well, I would like to believe that Republicans also want to have a moving and deep spiritual life. So that's my assumption. I have a few relatives who are Republicans, and as far as I can tell, that's the case with them. Um, so, but, so a couple different questions. I mean, one is about political orientation. One is about urban versus suburban. Yeah. And it's true. I, I mean, from the very beginning, since we started ECAR, we've had people say, I love what you're doing. It could never work here because. 
And, uh, and what people often talk about is the multiple rabbinical schools which are in Los Angeles, the numerous graduate school programs, which even for really marginalized Jews, you know, when people are younger, there's a constant flow of young people into this city. They're looking for something. They're, they're more open-minded. They want to find each other. So whether or not they care about a davening life or Jewish peoplehood or some sense of obligation, if they hear that there are beautiful Jewish women there or beautiful Jewish men, they might show up. So it's true. All of that helps. It helps being in a, in a more urban environment where people um, are, where there's where there's a kind of constant flow of young people, where there are a lot of uh, of people who are creative Jewishly also who are in that space. Um, I think that helps. And I we have not franchised Ikar. Um, we haven't said, you know, when we first got the website, we tried to get uh, just straight up Ikar and it, I-K-A-R, and it was a Russian prostitution site, so we couldn't get it. <laughs> so we had to go Ikar-LA, and somebody said, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is prophetic. Maybe one day, who knows, there'll be an Ikar-SF, and an Ikar-Chicago, and an Ikar-Philadelphia. And, uh, and we've, we've not done that for because uh, I don't believe that the model that we've built here should be replicated precisely anywhere. I think that we, as I've been trying to argue till I'm blue in the face to the funding world for years, I think that the focus on replication is the wrong focus. I think the focus instead should be on reverberation and amplification. So create spaces where people can feel inspired, like I was at B'nai Jeshurun, and then go off and build something meaningful, but in a language that's really unique to the leadership and to the population and to the social dynamic and to the political dynamic and to the moment uh, when that thing is built. So that's much more the model that we follow. And so I think there are aspects and elements what that can be modeled. What are things that you would see taken from your car to be amplified? So one is about a sort of spiritual vitality, right? And a, a willingness to to take risk and create an, a, a, an a religious environment, a, a space of a ritual uh, engagement, an environment of ritual engagement that's actually designed to really deeply move people, where we're willing to be knocked off, where the leadership is willing to be knocked off its own feet sometimes too, because if we're moving people, people need to be able to move us. So that's certainly a really critical piece. The integration of a serious spiritual and religious life with a sense uh, and an understanding of what it, what, what we are asked to do and be as Jews and as human beings in the world is a really critical piece. So in other words, the way that we daven on Friday night ought to affect dramatically the way that we wake up on Sunday morning and how we interact with the person we see during our lunch break on Monday afternoon and the way that we and how we read the paper Tuesday night. The way that we engage as Jews in, in ritual environments needs to have an impact on the way that we live as Jews during the rest of the week. And so many people feel such a profound disconnect between between who they who they are in shul and who they are the rest of their lives. And what we're trying to do is really create an integrated sense of, of self where great, you had a profound and moving and maybe even transformative Yom Kippur. Great, so what did you do the next day? to make the world a, a, a more decent place for human beings to live. I also think that this sense of community is, is really critically important to create a space where people actually feel responsible to show up for one another. And, and, and this is not unique to Icar um, at all, but, but I think it's really critical. And in some ways, building out this really deep and moving spiritual and religious ritual life and a really profound sense of social justice if we can't actually show up for each other is essentially meaningless 
So, uh, and I, sp I actually spoke about this on Kol Nidre this year, about what it means to really show up for each other, because I had this, this awakening about Mourner's Kaddish, about Kaddish Yatom, which I never understood for years. Um, and people would ask me, Rabbi, what does this mean? Why am I being asked to say these words that mean nothing to me in the moment, you know, after my, my beloved father dies or whatever? And I, I never really understood it. And I've read some beautiful interpretations and none of them touched me. And then I got a new Sidur that lays out Mourner's Kaddish like a screenplay would. So it says, Avel, the mourner, Yikadal v'yikadash shemei rabah. And then it says, Kahal, the, the community, Amen. And then Avel. And so each line is said by the, by, the, by the mourner and then by the community, by the mourner and the community. And I started to understand as I read this that this is what religious life is actually about. It's about taking people precisely in the moment where we feel most disconnected from everybody and we just want to go, just go hide away and putting us into a public space and calling the rest of the community who doesn't want to have anything to do with our pain because it makes us, it makes them so vulnerable to realize that loss is that real and that close and forces them to stand up and say, amen, I see you, right? I hear you, I see you, I will show up for you, I will be here for you. So on both sides, both for the people who are sort of experiencing loss and for the people who are able to be community, to be able to be present for one another. It's not only in loss, obviously, but also like that, that couple that, that, uh, that I mentioned earlier that got engaged during Kabbalah Shabbat, to be able to dance with each other, right? To be able to celebrate life's most profound moments. And so I think, that, I mean, if, you, if I had to answer on one foot the three, the, those are the three that I would, like really being present in community for one another, um, connecting the religious and spiritual life with a real sense of purpose and, and direction and responsibility and obligation in the world. And, uh, and, and really real religious and spiritual movement that's happening in the self and in the space of community. Thank you. Okay, we have some time for questions from anyone who'd like to ask you. Mike. Can you explain the, the meaning of the word ikhar? So you've got to repeat sure. the question. So the question was, can, uh, can I explain the meaning of the word ikhar? So I'll tell you, my husband David and I sat down and wrote every word that we would want to describe um, the kind of in English that we'd want to describe the kind of community that we wanted to build, and um, and they all translated as ikar. <laughs> so we decided maybe that's a sign that we should go with ikar. Um, so it means like the essence or the heart of the matter, the root of the thing. And so what we wanted to do was just get back to the heart of the matter. What does it mean to be a Jew and to be a human being in a world on fire? Right? And, and what, is, what are we called to, how are we called to engage in the, in the brokenness of the world? And, and how do we open up our eyes to see the magnificence of the world? What's the heart of the matter? That's what we were trying to achieve. Gaila. Um, many years ago. Just stand. and how you reconcile that with you know, what you guys were doing with 
people who may want a more traditional, who are used to the more traditional? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, I will absolutely acknowledge we have the benefit of starting something from scratch, which means we get to set the culture the way that we want the culture to be. So I say this is an intensely creative culture that is very deeply grounded in, in passionate and intense encounter with the Jewish tradition. So I'm not a liturgical... Um, I, like I'm not going to throw the liturgy away um, and, and just like write a, a really nice poem instead. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a traditionalist in many ways, but I get to set the culture and I say, and yet we are going to surprise ourselves and we're going to be uncomfortable. That's the culture and, and of this uh, community. And when you start from scratch, you can do that. The people who really hate that culture will not come anymore. You know, they'll stop coming. It's much harder when you're in an institution where there's already an institutional culture. Um, so, and I, I will say that I had this argument with Ed Feinstein many times um, in the early years. So of give, car. give context, not everybody knows Ed Feinstein. Oh, okay, sorry. Everybody doesn't know Ed Feinstein? Yeah. Um, okay, so now by a show of hands, who knows Ed Feinstein? Yes, okay. Ed Feinstein so, does get around, and for good reason. Yes. Um, so, so Eddie is a, um, a really extraordinary rabbi um, whose, whose community is Valley Beth Shalom, um, where he was a student of Harold Schulweis, and, and now he's the senior rabbi. Um, and he's extraordinary. He's a great teacher and a, and a very dear friend. Um, and he, so he would say to me, for many years he would say, you just don't understand. Like you can get up at a car and you can do whatever you want, but in a show where you have hundreds of people who come every week and they're used to it one way, even if they hate it that way, they don't want to change it. So, and so that's exactly the way Eddie would say it. And 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 I'm sure I'm sure he's right on some level. So here's what I what I would say to him. It's it's true. I have not tried radical and dramatic culture shift in uh, pre-established communities, and most often I get invited to come in and give a couple of talks and work with the staff and work with some of the community members and spark some ideas, and then I go home to LA for Shabbos. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm not actually responsible for the overhaul of culture in, in many conventional institutions, okay. But here's what I said back to Eddie, and I believe this to be the case. That if you, if you are a rabbi who's been around in a community for a while, that is, and tell me if I'm wrong here, okay. That it's absolutely within the realm of uh, of appropriateness to for a rabbi to stand up and say, you know what, I've been with you for seven years. I have stood at the graveside as we buried your loved ones. I have named your babies. I have sat with you for hundreds of collective hours of you know of singing and silence and conversation. I'm just asking you to trust me. For three months, we're going to do things a little bit differently. At the end of three months, we will have a community meeting, and you can tell me how much you hate everything that we've done for the past three months, but for three months, no complaints. Let's just see what happens, because I believe, as your rabbi, did you do this? No. <laughs> I'm just looking around to see how okay. people are going to respond if I try. Because, because I believe that something's possible that you're not going to like at first. But I think we can all go to a different place. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not possible, and then we'll go back to doing things exactly as they've always been done if you want. But I think if we try an experiment, we might end up with something <laughs> that's a little bit different from what we have now that might make us all feel better, right? So I, I, that's, my, that's my guess. And by the way, Eddie never conceded that that was actually possible or realistic in a conventional institution. But VBS is different now than it was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's because Eddie's done some version of that, you know, in, in different ways over the course of the past decade. And and I, I mean I think it's I think it's not Pollyannish to believe that our institutions can actually change, even the ones that have been around for 150 years. So.
few quick questions and some short answers, just a few. <laughs> um, and then we're gonna, I have a closing request and we'll pull it together. I don't know your name. Brenda. Brenda. Brenda, Brenda Berry. Go ahead, Brenda. Uh, my rabbi in Winnipeg was Zalman Schachter. Reb Zalman. Reb Zalman. He solved the problem of some people loving him, which was all the kids, and hating him, which was all the parents. They were terrified. <laughs> and hence he moved on. Uh, many years later. Yeah. But we were in his house, in his house, which was a 12 by 20 foot living room and a basement with the lowest ceiling mm. in the world, for 14, 15, 16. I gotta, I gotta say, I love Rep Zalman. I got about four or five questions. So just, you gotta just, be really focused. Okay, the point was that if you go to Winnipeg today and you look at the leadership, they all came out of that living room. Mm -hmm. It didn't yeah. have to be canned right. and carried. Right. You're talking about not something reverberating, mm -hmm. not, not being franchised. How do you do that? Right. Okay, the, the single best and most fundable answer to that question um, is through rabbinic fellowship, which is how I was trained at B'nai Jeshurun and what we now do at Eddie Carr, which is uh, get funding um, from people who believe in the Jewish future to bring dynamic, extraordinary, intelligent, young rabbis like Rabbi Adam Greenwald into your community. <laughs> train them in a, in a very intensive way for one full-time year at the end of rabbinical school and then send them off into the world to do something interesting and extraordinary. Our first rabbinic fellow is a rabbi named Lizzie Heideman who went to Chicago and built a community called Mishan, um, which is, I mean, now has hundreds of people, mostly previously unaffiliated, who are engaged in meaningful Jewish experiences that they wouldn't have been in before. Our second was Rabbi Adam Greenwald. So I think that the, I believe in the fellowship model. It's not going to mass produce results, but I believe that this is the best and, and, and you're an example of that, coming from B'nai Jeshurun with Roli Matalone and Marshall Meyer. I'm a big fan of Reb Salman. Susan and then Ari. Susan? Yes. Um, Rabbi, tell me about the challenge you face with your space. With you're at the JCC, which I wouldn't think could go on indefinitely, and but it gives you a lot of freedom that more institutional synagogues don't have. How are you? How do you think about that moving into the future? So I'm going to reframe the question okay. and a paragraph. Okay. You're currently <laughs> you're currently in rented space, yes. open space. Um, what are the limitations of that space? Do you see yourself moving to another kind of space? Okay, this is much longer than a question I'm answer sure. than we have time yeah. for, but I'll say just very quickly, um, there have been incredible blessings of being in a rented space to, in order to just start our, you know, get our community off the ground because the community, and, the community has really been about the people who are there and the spirit that we're able to build um, and not about you know supporting and sustaining a space yet. Right. So that's a great gift at the, in the early years of a, of a community. But we're very focused on um, uh, whenever, we ultimately will need to move into a more permanent solution. We're in the process, I can talk to you about it afterwards. <laughs> um, but but I, I believe strongly that even when we have a permanent solution, whether that's at the JCC, which would be great, or somewhere else, we still, what we still need to do is what I started with, which is take the good stuff and bring it out to where the people are. Because even even for Ikar, there are people who are scared to even walk in the door because they're 25 or 29 years old and they're scared to death of Jewish institutional life. And so that's why we go to bars and we spend a lot of time in living rooms all around the city talking to people in a space that doesn't scare them so that they understand that there's a Jewish conversation that they can be involved in. As Ari Katz asks the next question, I'm just going to take two after that. Um, and um, I want to pause just to thank Ari Katz and CSP 
with uh, Marianne in the back. For you guys wouldn't be possible without our partnership. Ari? Okay, so I'll answer the second one uh, for, I'm trying to think which of this is a harder question so, so to answer. Let me reframe them though, everyone could hear, and I'll do them in a focused way, a paragraph each, and and then we'll have Bill Langstaff and Mike Lefkowitz, and we'll pull it together. Two questions. The model of, of ECAR is a prayer team with Hillel Tegay, who's a musician leading, who you've referred to as the anti-cantor, the anti-cantor. No, no, Ari did. I thought you were quoting her. No. Okay. So that's why it's good to clarify. For the record, for I the record, not record, For the record. For the record. she didn't say it. He did. Um, so deal with that one first. Okay, okay. Um, so, so the role of Cantor. But Ari, this might, first of all, thank you, Ari, for, bringing, for being a part of uh, helping to make this happen tonight. Um, Hillel is an unusual choice for a cantor. It's it's both surprising both for him and for me that he ended up in this position. Um, and I did choose him uh, for this role precisely for that reason. Um, Hillel is the son of, uh, of Jeff Teague, who's a Bible scholar and a rabbi in Philadelphia, um, who came out to Los Angeles to make it big in the music biz. And, um, and I mean, he was really a rocker more than a chazan, who, um, who I, I knew from his background had um, had both incredible proficiency and skill with traditional liturgy, um, and is one of those people who can just, you know, when your Torah reader doesn't show up and you have that moment of, what's gonna happen now? And then Hillel Tigay is there, he can just come right up and read from the Torah, any portion, great. So I knew he had that, but I was also really interested in him precisely because he wasn't trained in a traditional way. And so he had a totally different sense of what was possible musically, which wasn't, yet narrowed by the lens of what can we do musically in a Jewish institutional framework, but rather just how can music move people. And so what I wanted to try to do was take the purity of that instinct and bring that into a davening space. So we uh, were really partners in the davening um, experience. We meet together uh, to learn once a week. We study um, we study Heschel together. We share music that we feel really moved by. We watch YouTube videos of uh, Sufi uh, of Sufi leaders who are leading in prayer. Whatever's moving us and inspiring us, and then we talk about what it is that we're actually trying to do um, at Icar, and we push and challenge each other in that way. Um, so that's a very uh, a very dynamic and important relationship um, at Icar. 
the question of, um, of rabbis and the fear of speaking um, about issues that they care deeply about. You know, one of, one, one of the former interns at Ikar, Rabbi Scott Perlow, who's a rabbi at Sixth and I in DC now, um, he coined the phrase, um, the death by Israel sermon. <laughs> so, right, so that means that the rabbi will get fired if he gives a certain sermon about Israel. Um, and so he doesn't give that sermon if he wants to keep his job. And I will, I will say it's not only about Israel, but of course there are so many issues that, um, that people are afraid to speak about and often with good reason because they're, it's not gonna be uh, received well by their, by their communities. So this is a challenge both for the leadership and for the communities, for the leaders. I'll give you one example, but again, I, I have an eye on the clock. Um, such an important issue for you, looking over your sermons, is gun control. Yes. In this congregation, that would be a very controversial sermon. What's yeah. your advice to me? So, so here's the here's the issue. I, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just say this from two sides. Okay, because for, for, for the rabbis, ECAR, for ECAR, no guns. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. For ECAR, no guns. Yeah. Um, meaning nobody, no one's a gun owner at ECAR. Right. You shouldn't own. I mean, it's okay. Not. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say yeah. that. Okay. Um, so, what what I know is that my community expects me to preach with all my heart on the things that I think are the most compelling moral questions of the day. Yeah. I know that nobody, that I will never give a sermon that everybody in the room agrees with, and yet nobody's ever walked out from one of my sermons. So people get angry sometimes when I say things. I've been and more successful than you. Okay. <laughs> Bill Langstaff. Thank you. I appreciate Bill, that. Stand, so, I, it, and again, I apologize. I'm only keeping one eye on the clock. Oh, can, so wait, but can I, can I just, I want to just, I know that. you have one eye on the clock, but yeah. let me just say, this is a challenge on both sides. The challenge to the leadership, Ari, is I would say, what does it mean to build a, to build a career as a moral and spiritual leader who feels afraid to say, to, to speak out on the great moral and spiritual challenges of the day? That's a. Re I mean, I say that with with like humility, knowing that I'm not going to be fired for giving the sermon that I'm dying to give at Ikar. I, I know that it's very dangerous and very scary. But for the leadership, what does that mean? And for the community, what does it mean to to, to place so much pressure and, and and the threat of of firing a rabbi on on your leadership so that they feel they we feel afraid to say what we actually believe in the world? Mm -hmm. What are we trying to do as a community? Do we want to move or do we want to die? That's it. And, and, you, and I think that what's great is to be in a community where people disagree and where the rabbi can preach her heart out about gun violence prevention and other or immigration reform and then can happen what happened a few weeks ago where someone comes over and says, you got it all wrong. What do you want us to do? Open the board. And we fight about it. And we argue about it. And we have lunch together. And it's great. Right? That's a, that's a conversation that's alive. And what I'm afraid of is if I'm scared and they're scared, nobody's being honest with each other. Right? Okay. You know what the rabbis did years ago? They argued with yeah, I think so. Uh, um, so that being said, the courage and, and, uh, and vision that you had to go where you are to feel right about what you do, um, the fact that you have that vision, you know, you're limited right now in numbers. Okay, Do you have a vision on how to increase those numbers? Because as I see it, um, the direction that you're going in is really, it could be the, you know, the, the new direction of our religion, because overall, religion's having a real tough time right now. The, the dogma of religion is having a tough time, and your approach 
is fresh and it's new and it's exciting and it's it's it, people are becoming engaged with what you do and that's incredible. So I'm going to reframe Bill's question. You've been successful at building quality of dynamic religious engagement, but your numbers are limited. Do you have a vision for doing relevant hundreds, thousands engaged in your leadership, in your model? Thank you um, for saying that. I, I, I do appreciate that. I'm, I feel that this is that that ICAR is part of a culture shift that's happening in in the rabbinate in American Jewry today, and we're certainly not alone in this place. But we're I mean we're seeing a change. There's a the, the trend is shifting, and so on one hand there's a tremendous amount of hand wringing about you know the Pew study and the diminishing numbers in the Jewish community, and of those Jews who still exist. Um, there, there are so many who don't associate in any way with Judaism as a religion and what does it mean and the Jewish future, woe, woe is us. Um, and, and I hear that and I understand that there is a, the, a nechemta, right? There's a, there is a, there's a positive twist to this, which is the emergence around the country of very beautiful, very spirited initiatives, some in the form of spiritual community, some organizations, some corner minyanim, you know, just around the country, little, uh, little starter communities that are happening where people are saying this means something to me and I, and I resonate to it and I want to be engaged in it. So I'll just tell you one thing that, I, that, uh, that occurred to me on the red eye on the way to Philadelphia last week. <laughs> it occurred to me that while all these Jews say that they, that they reject Judaism as a religion or they don't associate with Judaism as a religion, so I thought, well, what are they actually rejecting? These are people I know. I mean, most of my people you know, were or are in this category at some point. And, and you know, I spent, I spent the past 10 years speaking with hundreds or thousands of people who would put themselves in this category. So what are they actually rejecting when they don't associate with Judaism as a religion anymore? What they're rejecting is perfunctory, uh, perfunctory performative um, engagement in services. They're rejecting, a, like, please rise, please be seated. We're too polite to say what we actually believe. You know, it would be inappropriate for someone to stand up when everyone else is sitting down, to drink coffee when everybody wants it, but that's not what we do. You know, to, to really speak their hearts, to cry. You know, you see people quietly dabbing their eyes, but we're afraid to cry. Why are we afraid to cry? What do we think prayer is actually about? I think what people are rejecting is they're rejecting a convention of, of religious life that was very popular in the 20th century and doesn't speak to many of us anymore, not only young people, but many of us feel bored or disinterested in that version of religious life. We're not re rejecting Judaism as a religion. We're rejecting the container that held Jewish religiosity last, in the last century, and we're ready for something different, something that feels different where we can actually move and, and be moved. That's my sense. That's why I feel a tremendous amount of optimism despite the numbers, because I see this happening all around the country when people are saying, I, I want to reclaim what is at the essence of what it means uh, to be a Jew in the world. Last question, Mike, and then I'll I wouldn't say it like that. I mean, again, I think when people reject religion, what they're rejecting isn't actually what Jewish religiosity is. To Heschel, Jewish religiosity was wonder. Who's rejecting wonder, mm -hmm. right? One, to be able to look at the world in awe and wonder. 
So it, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it, so I don't see people rejecting that. I see people rejecting the brick and mortar that, that reflects a different, a different time and a different spirit and a different culture. I, I think that we have to get back to the heart of what is possible in Jewish religious life. And so I wouldn't separate out religion from peoplehood. I think that so many people who identify as Jews and have a sense of Jewish peoplehood would actually love to uh, would love the idea of waking up with gratitude and going to bed with forgive with words of forgiveness. We we in the re religious circles would call that modeani and kriyat shema alamita, right? But other people might not associate it with that language. But that's what the Jewish religion offers to us. It says, "How about if the first thing you say in the morning is thank you, right?" And I've never met anybody who's rejected that idea. And how about if the last thing you say before you go to bed is, "I forgive you and I'm sorry," right? Because I don't know if I'm going to make it tomorrow, till tomorrow, and I don't know if you will either, and I don't want either of us to carry this to the grave, so I forgive you. Who rejects that idea? That's Jewish religion, right? But that's not what people think about when they think that they're rejecting religion. Mm -hmm. yeah. By the way, I've learned that Orthodox Jews wake up every morning, and yet you can see that it's going to get people more interested in Judaism than what it is. So I want to thank. Rabbi Browse, I have one last thing I'd like her to do, um, but I'll say this to set up, to conclude with her having the last voice. And again, it's to thank Rabbi Browse, who drove down from LA. She did have an incentive to visit her brother-in-law, Stuart, and his family. And um, we're very privileged, I say this to you, to say it publicly to have Rabbi Light now in Tarbut Torah directing kindergarten through 12th grade. I think he's a game changer in the quality of Jewish education. And Rabbi Braus is a game changer in the quality of synagogue life in America. She is fortunate to be in an urban center where she can experiment and play. In that sense, for somebody sitting here, what you're doing is in part R&D, research and development of the Jewish people. And yet, I do think that what you're doing, that unlike what B'nai Jeshurun did, has seeds that will grow elsewhere and be amplified. And for your courage, for your spiritual presence, we as an extended community are, are privileged to have you as a leader and a teacher. So that's the thank you. You opened with Hine Matovu. You can choose to close with that or something else to give you give us a feel okay. for Jewish connection. All right. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to say we I mentioned before um, you know, this idea that if you want to love everybody, you have to start by loving somebody, right? I, I mean you, you don't have to just because you can't change everything doesn't mean that you're free to not try to change something. So I know that not every place is in a big city with lots of opportunities, um, but we can all do something. So that's what I hope will be uh, the takeaway. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna ask you to stand up. And we'll do it again. Just see if it feels a little different now. <laughs> Stretch a little bit, move around. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's close with Hinematov just as we open. Shevet 
Shannon.